dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Alrighty, so uh, are you all recovered from Commodity Classic? Did you get enough sleep? Well, sleep wasn't a problem. It was just finding the top of my desk when I got back to the office. <laughs> uh, the top of my desk after four, well, six straight weeks of solid travel, yes, <laughs> and uh, also doing laundry. <laughs> yeah. Although doing laundry is a little bit difficult for me right now because it's up and downstairs and uh, I'm down a knee. <laughs> You're actually going to spread the word that you <laughs> well, fell down? <laughs> so... This actually was not my fault. I mean, look, I am a klutz. I, I will admit that. And there's plenty of times I've tripped over a shadow, plenty of times. But this go round, it was not my fault. So I'm at the Starbucks and Hayes, and I'm at the counter with my fellow's uh, daughter, and um, we're getting coffee, and we're going to sit outside with my fella and Maggie, the the you know, wonder schnauzer kind of thing, and and. Uh, we, were, we ordered the coffee and I turned to walk down the counter and my right foot goes right out from underneath me. Well, turns out I had stepped on a plastic price display and as my, actually my, I stepped on it with my left foot. As my left foot goes out, I go down to do the splits and I hit my right knee on their concrete. All of my weight on my right <laughs> knee on concrete, Kayleen. As my mother would say, did you break the floor? <laughs> um, I wish, because that part of me doesn't bounce. Had I fallen on my on my considerable rear end, it would have bounced and we would have been fine. <laughs> However, uh, no, that wasn't fun. In fact, I went to the ER to <laughs> go and have uh, pictures taken because I wasn't sure if I'd broken something, Kayleen. It hurt that bad. Yeah. And it still hurts. I've... Hit my knees a few times running barrels, and there was one time that I went to the emergency room afterwards, and it I I know where you're coming from. I still have a dent on my leg from that barrel. Yeah, I almost puked on their floor. <laughs> well, I waited. I hit a barrel in Tucumcari, New Mexico. We drove home, and I got home at 5 in the morning. <laughs> good Lord. And my husband looked at me, and he's like, you don't look very good. And I pulled up my pant leg and showed him my knee. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you better get your mom to take you to the doctor. And she did. <laughs> get your mom to take you to the doctor. Yes, because he was him. going to work. We weren't married yet at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Spence. Way to go. Well, and both legs were bruised up because I had hit three barrels that weekend. And <laughs> the doctor goes, so which leg is it? <laughs> I was not amused by his humor. You know, there's an easy fix for that. Stop hitting barrels. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My easy fix was if one of the little podunks at the counter had picked up the plastic like they were supposed to. But, hey, um, the funny part about all of this, and I say funny as in I'm not amused, 
um, they kept serving people in line and somebody actually walked over me to get their coffee. Yeah, people are crappy like that. You know, I love coffee as much as the next person, but that was just rude. So, um, yeah. Uh, So did the kids know your face after all this travel? They didn't seem too out of (laughs) sorts. The dogs, on the other hand, were happy to see me when I got into the house at midnight. (laughs) One of them had broken out of her cage and was laying on the couch and she was the one that smelled like skunk because the skunk smell hit me at the oh, door. Oh, no. Did your couch smell like skunk now? No. Oh, so I God. cleaned her cage out the next day and swept the floor. And <laughs> A mother's work is never done. <laughs> no, and by Sunday morning, my floor was dirty again. So I give up. <laughs> Don't give up, honey. <laughs> Keep the fight. Well, hey, um... We're still traveling a little bit because this Friday, High Plains Journal is going to be at K-State Cattlemen's Day promoting Cattle U, which is going to be July 29th and 30th back here in Dodge City. So, folks, if you're around, uh, stop by the booth and register to win a trip to Cattle U. And if you all have a thought or a comment, drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or you can call us at the office, 1-800-452-7171. Well, and you can always do us a favor and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. In this week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have missed in the March 2nd print edition. We'll have a chat with Brian Alexander, the Red Hills rancher, and he was a speaker at our Soil Health U this last January about soil health and contract grazing. And of course, Kayleen will bring us the latest on grain markets and we'll have those final thoughts. So Kayleen, it is sunny and pretty and I can't believe we're inside recording this but we are inside recording this um so if you're outside enjoying the sun and the nice warm breeze on your face uh maybe you're checking that pen of heifers for any new faces uh be sure to ride along with us here on HPJ Talk cover story this week was from our colleague David Murray of Waterways Journal, The Busy Frontier of Corn Genetics. Murray writes about the lengthy and expensive process of developing new genetic traits in corn. Companies are using more and more data and measurements to predict variety performance even before the novel seed event goes to a field trial. And some companies are looking beyond the traditional uses of corn for more consumer-driven traits like those that will develop environmentally friendly dyes from pigments found in colored corn kernels. Say colored corn kernels three times, Kayleen. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kayleen brought us an update from NCBA on the Cattle Facts Outlook Seminar. 2019 had incredible impact on cattle markets, and that impact will be felt on into 2020 and beyond, said CEO Randy Block. Wet weather had an enormous impact on calving rates, and then the Tyson plant fire in Holcomb, Kansas, also brought short-term pain until it could reopen. But, Block says, strong protein demand is still ahead for cattlemen. Jenny had coverage from the first-ever K-State Industrial Hemp Conference February 4th in Wichita. Researchers are starting their hemp research from the ground up, and the first-year results are widely anticipated. They studied pest control methods, ideal planting methods for both high tunnels and outdoor growth, and more. 
And yes, Kayleen, they did serve brownies at lunch. Really? They did. <laughs> On our opinion and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmeier writes about the upcoming deadline for farmers to elect PLC or ARC coverage. Seymour Clearly writes about Blue and Gold Forever, the number of FFA alumni in various positions of leadership around the country. And Dave also brings us a review of Prairie Truth, a historical fiction novel written by Marilyn Bay. And don't forget to look for the special coverage from our Soil Health You and Trade show on page 10 from our contributor, Tim Unruh. Leading the livestock section, Lacey Newland has a story about the Colorado calf auction that has benefited a hospice center for 34 years. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. Jenny and Kayleen, and we have joining the podcast today, uh, Brian Alexander from Sun City, Kansas. Now, some of you who attended our Soil Health U in Salina, Kansas this last January, you might have sat in on Brian's session, and Brian is a a rancher with his dad, and he ranches um, just in between Medicine Lodge and Coldwater, and you're in the heart of God's country, right, Brian? Yes, ma'am. We're up here at the northern edge of the Red Hills. And that's how you got your name Red Hills Rancher, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I was looking for a name to put out a public side of my of my life on social media, and that's just what I came to do. There you go. Well, hey, Brian, why don't you describe the operation for folks that may not be familiar with um, your ranch? And and you guys do things a little bit differently as far as um, your goals for your cattle herd. And let's talk a little bit about that. Well, first off, uh, the ranch, we're, like you said, we're located between Medicine Lodge and Coldwater down here in Barber County, about 20 miles from Oklahoma. Um, average rainfall is about, I don't know, 22, 24 inches, something like that. Um, ranch is about 7,000 acres. It's wholly owned by the family. Um, I own part of it myself and at least the rest from the family partnership. Okay. So what kind of cattle do you all have? Uh, generally, I've, I've just been a custom grazing operation, so I take in about anything that somebody wants me to, somebody will pay the bill for me to take in. So I see a lot of black Angus, uh, a lot of black over black, a lot of just general mixed commercial herds. Uh, last year, I did have a, had 123 Corianes that I custom grazed for a gentleman. That was a, that was a pretty wild experience. <laughs> so for those not familiar, custom grazing um, basically, you're you're uh, letting folks bring out their cattle to uh, take uh, take in the benefits of the good grassland that you all are growing there, and there's a, a cost share agreement there, right? Yes, yes, and generally the specific agreement will vary between you know operator and operator, but uh, yeah, that, that's generally it. I take in cattle on a we'll just call it a day rate, um, and I guess the analogy would be I'm a hotel for cows. <laughs> you place to sleep, I have water and grass, and I put out mineral to customer specifications and rotate the cattle through the pastures to make sure they've got the highest quality forage available. So how is that different from how you guys used to operate, or is this something that you all have always done? Well, it, that's not really a fair question. I mean, okay. I, I kind of grew up in this rotation, rotation grazing, manage intensive grazing uh, environment, 
but I do see, you know, a lot of the neighbors, um, you know, neighbors and other folks around do like a typical set stock system where they'll just, you know, throw out a few cattle in a big pasture and let them stay there for 90 or 120 days and then go discover them later. We, uh, <laughs> and I like to call that Columbus style grazing management. <laughs> turn them out and then go discover them. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your grazing plan and what your goals are and what you're, you set out to accomplish as far as that goes with the custom stuff. Well, the goals of the ranch, so just a quick excerpt from our mission statement, um, is to maximize the production of protein and shape a harmonious existence of nature. So I don't try to fight the system. I just try to replicate the natural system or, uh, or simulate the natural system um, of antiquity. I'm thinking back to 150, 200 years ago when buffalo roamed the plains at very large herds and they would have huge animal impact. They would completely defoliate thousands and thousands of acres in a day and then they'd leave and not come back for several months to allow that forage time to, to rest and regrow and, and be fresh again for when they came back. And I'm just trying to simulate that on on my little chunk of paradise here by rotating the cattle around through pastures to make sure that my grass has a chance to rest and regrow without animal impact. So you're really working with nature instead of against it. Um what are some goals when, you, when you're setting those cattle out there, when you're deciding when to move them from one paddock to the next, um, what, do you, what, do you, what are you looking for when you get out and you start scouting that grass? Well, it, my primary concern is the soil and the grass. And, you know, secondary to that would be livestock production. The more I find that the more attention that I pay to the health of my soil and the health of my grass, the better the cattle perform and the lower inputs they need. Mm-hmm. So those Coriante cattle, um, how'd they do? Because they're a naturally, let's just say, bony kind of looking <laughs> thing, right? Well, they're always going to be a little bit on the bony side. They're always going to look a little bit on the bony side, and that's just, just part of the breed. I would say, so the ones that I had came from, you know, 123 of them living in a 900-acre pasture for six, seven, eight months, and I think they saw people about four times. Oh. And we run them up, put them on trucks, and bring them here, and I slam them into, like, 4.5 acres on the first day behind a hot wire. We had a few problems uh, <laughs> about four or five days, but uh, once, once they trained me a little bit and I trained them a little bit and we got them all behind the hot wire, it was no problem keeping them, keeping them in a really, really super tight bunch. Did you have a few runners? <laughs> um, not, not really after the first week. I did have one that... that decided she wanted to be on the other side of the barbed wire a lot more, um, which, you know, that, that's usually not a problem, but when it's the highway side of the barbed wire fence, yeah. like eight times in three days, yeah, I got rid of her. <laughs> she got on the track and went home. Yeah. Work with me, honey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, there can be a problem animal in any, in any herd, so it's just there are things you got to deal with. And I understand you, you move your fence or... How do you, how do you accomplish rotating the cattle? I mean, do you have certain equipment you have set up, or how do you get the cattle moved to where you need them to be? Well, I I have several different systems that I use, and you know, I, last year I managed four different herds of cattle, and each one of them was kind of on a slightly different um, type of program. My two big cells that are broke up and subdivided. One of them has twenty two paddocks. The other one has twenty seven paddocks. I'm hoping to bump both those numbers up this year. Um, I've been to the mid high thirties. Um, the paddocks 
that I have set up with, with like a more permanent cable type fence. Um, that's just, you know, we call them in with a siren and we'll just string them through a gate. Now, on the strip grazing program I did with the Coriones, so what's really cool about that is, like I said, there's 123 of them. We only had 250 acres to work with, and we lived there for 120 days. Oh, wow. So well, you every, were cycling through every, really quickly. Yeah, we went, we went around it twice, and there's still plenty of grass. I couldn't have gone all the, the whole dry season in there. I would have run out of grass about a month, about two months ago. But it was it was an experiment just to see, you know, what we could do, what we could take, and what would be left over it at high stock densities. And uh, when we moved on there, that was behind a poly wire, and we just moved the poly wire every day. It was kind of like a leapfrog type deal. Hmm. So they're grazing behind one wire, and then you you know you step off and you you know you measure out, you put another like four and a half acres in between the two wires, and then you take out the one they're grazing in front of, and they just pile onto that fresh strip of grass and they live there all day. It's pretty cool to see that you know to see them just all stand on that strip of grass. You open up fresh for the day and won't stand on anything else all day. So when you're finding cattlemen to send cattle to you for this hotel for cows, um. How do you approach them, or how do they approach you? Where do you guys find each other? Because uh, this system isn't for everybody. I mean, not all cattlemen kind of um, are are looking for what you're offering there. And and how do you even have that conversation about? Look, I'm I'm looking at this for the soil health, for the health of my grass. Your cattle are going to benefit from that, but um, there are some some benefits and there are some costs, right? Right. And um, what I offer is, you know, I. I can offer a pretty reasonable day rate on a take-in because my efficiencies are so high. I've got my grazing efficiencies pretty high, and just my workflow efficiency is also pretty high as far as, you know, how quickly I can get things done and how quickly I can travel around. So I offer, I I can offer, that's where, that's, I guess that's my secret weapon is, uh, is I'm pretty efficient at using my forage. I'm pretty efficient at, at time utilization. And then as we go forward, I'm looking to be even more efficient at using my forage so I can raise my stocking rate even higher. Well, and you're still putting the pounds on those cattle. Uh, yes. Um, we did do some yearlings uh, last year on native range. I don't want to say exactly what the number that they did mm-hmm. as far as pounds per day. It wasn't great, um, but considering the year that we had with, you know, having a lot, lot of rain and not a lot of sun. The grass is pretty washy. I kind of call that sun drought. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't perform as well as anybody would have liked them to perform. But then again, I've talked to quite a few other producers, somebody at least in every direction from me, and uh, other guys are kind of reporting that they had lower than expected gains last year as well. So it's... Uh, it's always interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wouldn't be in agriculture if we wanted the same thing every day, right? <laughs> right, and, you know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And if it was consistent, nobody would ever go out of business. Uh, there you go. Tell me a little bit about how you've managed the relationship with your dad and working with him and how it's progressed, the older both of you have gotten. Because that whole well, intergenerational you know, but... thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... I mean, that's kind of a big one. It's uh, not sure where to start on that. Um, when I moved back here in 2006, you know, we, we had some discussions about, well, what do you want to do, Brian? Well, I'd kind of like to run a ranch someday. So it, it was a long process of 
uh, him turning things over to me and different management tasks and, and different things. And um, he, he participated at the time, he was participating in the executive link program through uh, ranch management consultants, which also puts on the ranching for profit school. And that was a really valuable resource of him to have several other minds help him with the process and help be creative in that process to uh, a succession to turn things over to me. Yep. As time's gone by, you know, he's, he's up in his 70s. Um, the wildfire came through almost four years ago now. and mm-hmm. that, was, that was the last season that I, I really asked a lot of physical labor from him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's getting old and he just can't do it anymore. I lean on him a lot more these days for mentorship and guidance. Um, you know, I'll spend quite a bit of time proofing out a concept and you know, running numbers and when, I, when, I, when I'm pretty sure I have it, sometimes I'll just go run it by dad just to see what he thinks after I've got all my all my crap together. Because if, <laughs> if it's a good idea and the numbers think it's a good idea, I'm not going to commit to dad it's a good idea. <laughs> it's probably going to work. He's definitely still around in a mentorship role for me every day. But that's so critical because um, for one generation to to actively look ahead and realize, you know what, I've got to start taking steps back so that the next one can have room to make this their own and, and be that mentor relationship, man, that's so critical. And kudos to you guys for figuring that out and, and for letting it grow. There's just a point where, you know, one person runs out of creativity or runs out of drive and you need to bring another person on board to get a fresh perspective and a fresh set of experience and new ideas to drive an operation or an enterprise forward. We'll be right back with the rest of our interview with Brian Alexander, the Red Hills Rancher. But first... Are you curious about soil health topics like what we're talking about here? Be sure to sign up for the Soil Health HPJ Direct newsletter at hpj.com slash sign up. And keep your calendars open for the upcoming Cattle U July 29th and 30th in Dodge City, where we will talk about this topic and much more in the cattle industry. Registration can be found online at www.cattleu.net. And now the rest of our interview with the Red Hills rancher himself, Brian Alexander. So you said you came back to the operation. Um, you had some military service, right? Yes, I, I did eight and a half years in the Navy. So what was it about that that you brought back to Sun City and the operation? And, and you know, you, you went out and you had eight years of seeing how the Navy does things and other people do things. Um, what are some of those things that you brought back and said, you know what, this is an operational um, fix here or, or this is a leadership fix here or something along those lines? Oh, good question. One <laughs> even one I was even, even had thought about uh, being ready for, but luckily I've kind of thought about this quite a bit. So there's there's been a lot of talk in the last year, 18 months, about integrating systems-based thinking into ranching. Mm-hmm. And growing up, kind of in the unique experience that I did is being exposed to holistic management and ranching for profit from the time I was about 10. So, I mean, over 30 years ago. So I've been hearing these things, you know, water cycling, nutrient cycling, and mineral cycling. And as I was growing up on the ranch, Dad was, Dad was figuring these things out. And he was teaching them to me. And I'm picking them up unconsciously, and I don't, I don't know it. So... Then when I joined the military and I ended up as a mechanic on my first ship, 
and we're learning how to do all this maintenance and how these systems work, and then we get into troubleshooting and casualty control, and, oh, man, I just ate it up, because now I've got a red book in front of me that lists everything out in order. Well, if this is the indication, then you need to look at this, and if it's this indication, then these are your two actions. Mm-hmm. So I, I already kind of have a pre-ordered mind as far as being able to work through the steps of solving a problem. Um, just an example, yesterday, uh, we're in the yard, and Antonio says, hey, we should raise, you know, maybe we could raise that gutter up. All we got to do is just raise up that inch. And you'll instantly start thinking, okay, well, we need ladders. We need this. We need that. We need, okay, we're going to be that high off the ground. Maybe we should think about harnesses. Should we tie ourselves off on the roof? Like, before she's even, you know, even finished her sentence, you know, I'm already trying to take that apart and break it down into tasks and look at, look at a safety aspect of it. So sometimes that's just, that's just how I, that's just, you know what my dad used to say you got to think two car lengths ahead even if you're not behind the wheel right and you know part of it is is the seven layers of why mm-hmm. okay so if we see something we don't like in the pasture we keep asking why until we understand what's really going on there and sometimes some people will get to maybe the first or second level of why and they're satisfied with that and some people will go three four even five feet but you know, I, I I just have this drive in me. I've got to keep asking, why? Why is this doing this? Why is this doing this? Well, why does that work this way? Well, how come it affects this this way? So continuing to ask why to get to the root of the problem is, you know, that's systems-based thinking. That's, you know, that's troubleshooting, and that's, that's what we need to bring back into aging. You and Kayleen have a uniquely shared experience here. Um, about four years ago, there were wildfires that went through vast swaths of land um, in the Clark County region and, and parts West and three years ago, Clark three County. years ago for you for Clark County. And, and it was four years ago that the, the fires stopped right at your door. Um, let's talk about the wildfires and, and what it did, not just to the land, but to your operation and, and the lessons you might've learned from that. You know, other than the obvious, other than the obvious pain happened to, you know, rebuild all your fences, which you know, everybody had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate being a, custom grazier stocker operation. I didn't have any livestock on the ranch at the time, so I didn't have to worry about signing up the hay truck and, you know, find somebody spend 10, 12 hours a day running, you know, running feed bales after my cows. All I had to worry about was, all right, let's get the fence up, and while we're getting the fence up, we'll see how the grasses are covering, and that was, that was kind of my primary mode. But I look at the fire as, as a blessing. More than anything else, it was a, it was a huge blessing, um, Number one, we affected a lot of areas that we couldn't know, that we wouldn't have ever been able to possibly affect with prescribed fire. Uh, there's canyons that are completely burnt out of cedar trees that you know bad set well, I've tried for thirty years to get fire to go down in there and you know, all it took was one Anderson Creek and the canyon's completely cleaned out. Um, so there, there were a lot of good things, you know. I think the two fires, the Starbuck fire and the Anderson Creek wildfire, I think that's caused a lot of people in the area to see the benefits of fire, to see the benefits of tree control, and even to some extent to see that, you know, if you've been a good manager and your grass is in good shape and, you know, your soil is in good shape and your systems are functioning well, that something like a wildfire just really doesn't affect you. You know, it doesn't actually affect your production base that much. It just kind of cleans it off and resets the system to some extent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
fire fire we use for two reasons. You know, you use a, uh, a reclamation fire to go get your pasture back from the cedar trees, and then there's maintenance fires, which are more to just kind of keep them from coming out of the areas you have them contained. And then there's also the there's also the argument that we need fire every once in a while to reset the grass that doesn't get grazed because if we don't go to big blue stems and give me grasses and little blue stems for too long, they get rank, they get tossed, they get gray, and they get black enough when they want to eat them. And the way to reset that is just run a fire across it and burn up all that dead crap and give new leaves a chance to grow. Yeah, I noticed that too in Clark County, the way the grass came back. I was completely skeptical that it would come back, which is the wrong way to think of it because fire happened for thousands of years, you know, out here on the prairie and then driving back, you know, two weeks later and it had rained and the grass was starting to come back and turn green. And my husband, he worked on a ranch down there a long time ago. And there was places on that ranch where there was water running in the creek. And there was, when he was on the, that working on that ranch, there was never water in that creek and there was cottonwoods that were gone and, and cedar trees. So it's, it's neat to see the regeneration of the ecosystem down there after the fire, even though it was as painful as it was. I could have told you that. I grew up in the Flint Hills burning pasture every year. Yeah. <laughs> you touched on you touched on something really important, Kayleen. The creeks that have come back. Yeah. That we've seen come back since these two big wildfires. And what's the change? We're not getting more rain. No. <laughs> We're not getting more rain. The only thing that's changed is we put fire down in those previously inaccessible areas and we removed a lot of the parasitic loads on our water table. Yep. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's how you and I first met was, you know, taking care of the dead cedar trees <laughs> at your cedar rodeo. And I tell you what, folks, if you've never seen a large tree mulcher in action take down a 30-foot dead cedar carcass, it is a beautiful, beautiful sight. <laughs> I, I've got a few videos up on YouTube. YouTube.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher with a few videos of that. No, but you're right. Um, you noticed right around where the cedar trees had been, that's where the grass started growing greenest first. That's where the, the water was most more available to them. That's what I saw just driving down the road. I don't know, Brian. Did, was that the same? Absolutely. Um, I figured it up a couple months ago. Um, over the last, really just in the last five years, we had a really concentrated effort working in canyons. Um, we did, there was some work done in the 2006-2008 time frame, but so since 2006, um, we've recovered and reclaimed almost 10 miles of stream and water course. Holy buckets. I'm not saying, I know I'm not saying that, you know, I've got 10 miles of awesome creek that you're on a kayak down. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but I'm saying that there's 10 miles of canyons I've been up and down, and now there's moisture running through there, there's wet spots, some places there's there's trickles, on a lot of them there's trickles of water. And, you know, when you can, when there's even a pool of water, just a damp spot where there was a, a cedar tree grove three, four years ago, and now it's cleared and you have a damp spot, that's progress to me. Wow. So let's talk about Red Hills Rancher uh, and your new out, um, outreach efforts and, and that sort of thing. Um, let's talk about how you decided to uh, put yourself out there, because that's 
that's kind of scary for some guys to, you know, raise their hands and go, yeah, you can ask me questions. I'm going to, I'm going to start answering things online. Oh, <laughs> uh, like I said, I, you know, it started several years ago and I just decided I wanted to have a, a public, a more public side of my business, a public persona. And, um, yeah, I've read several books on branding, on personal branding. And I said, well, I'll just, I'll just do this. So I sat around, I came up with the name Red Hills Rancher and, Started the page, and the rest is history. I think uh, I've got 2,260-some likes on, on Facebook. I think that's pretty incredible for a guy that doesn't sell anything. Yeah, <laughs> that is pretty good. So what are some of the questions that you're getting from other other ranchers that ha- are looking at what you're sharing and, and thinking, hey, I could do that? What What's the first thing that you tell them? I don't really get too many repeat questions because a lot of the questions I get would be uh, are pretty specific. This time of year, I, I get a lot of questions about, well, how do you plan your summer grazing? How do you plan your summer grazing? Um, and I also get a lot of questions about fire. Um, I expect over the next couple of weeks, I'll, I'll be putting a lot of miles on the old Jeep running around, helping people get ready to, to light things on fire. And that's, that's another huge part of what I do. So Red Hills Rancher has kind of grown into, um, I guess, advocacy mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, advocacy of just trying to be, be an advocate and a spokesperson for, for better management or for good management and soil health and regeneration of our agricultural lands and even past that um, we're starting to get really really passionate about trying to rebuild local food economies and, and building food oases in the middle of the food desert you know, out where you're at, there's a reason why we call it God's country. It's because it's very sparsely populated. <laughs> um, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there, yeah, Kayleen, the original introvert, has spent two weeks out of the last four in city in San Antonio, mm-hmm. and I think she's very much happy to be back in the grand city of Dodge City. <laughs> but um, you know, talking about food deserts and that sort of thing, uh, how do you? How do you manage living out in the middle of, mm, I wouldn't say nowhere, because there's some place, you know. Nowhere's over the hill. Nowhere's <laughs> over the hill. You're you're living in the middle of somewhere. Sorry. How do we manage getting good food? Um, <laughs> well, it, I guess we're in Wichita a couple times a month this time of year, so we try to hit Old Town Farmer's Market, support some of our vendors there. Um, I don't currently raise my own beef. Uh, I'm the weirdest guy ever, right? No, I'm a rancher that doesn't raise any, that doesn't own cows. So. <laughs> but that's uh, that's part of the plan for this year. Is uh, we're going we're exploring exploring old cow herd and exploring uh, exploring maybe some direct marketing, but that won't happen until next year anyway. But uh, and I, I have several friends that, that grow good cattle that uh, that I'm happy to get meat from. Um, I just try to eat local. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer. Shake the hand that feeds you and know the face of your farmer. I think those are two really big key concepts that uh, that people do to think about. You know, know where your food comes from and know what's in it and have a relationship with the person that grew your food. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of people say, well, you know, I can't afford that. I can't afford that chicken. That chicken's $5 a pound. Well, if you go to the grocery store and the chicken's a dollar and a half a pound, they should pay you a dollar and a half to take it home. It's, just... <laughs> it's not the same kind of chicken. You know, I, I'll go over to my friend and I'll pay, you know, I'll pay 20 bucks for a five-pound chicken before I go to the grocery store and pay 20 bucks for, you know, 10 pounds of chicken. Yeah. So... That's, that's just how I'm getting to be these days. <laughs> 
So um, in your rural part of the world, you know, you've got local communities that are smaller communities, um, rural economic development and, and trying to make sure that we keep the lights on and the, the hospitals open and, and folks like you that choose to live out where you live, you still have access to the services you need. Um, might explain to some of our listeners just what it is to live in the middle of somewhere <laughs> instead of the middle of nowhere. You know, how how is it like to live out where you do and, and just some of the day-to-day things that you got to go through and think about your processes? Because not everybody lives in the middle of somewhere. Well, it runs 20 miles. Like, if groceries, fuel, it's 20 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, McDonald's and Walmart is 35 to 40. Wichita is two hours. Dodge City's an hour and a half. It's two hours. Alva's an hour. So... The Red Hills is a really unique area, and I understand that you know it's just a really, really small part part of Kansas, but it's very, very sparsely populated. It's one of the most sparsely populated areas in the state, and you know we've got some places in western Kansas where you can drive for an hour and not see a car. Well, mm-hmm. kind of like that down here too. Uh, roads are few and far between, and houses are even fewer and farther between. There's just there's not much of us out here. Um, the context is how we get food. Um, mm-hmm. Case in point, a couple weeks ago, I had a potato farmer friend in southern Colorado who was coming through. And I was like, hey, hook me up with some potatoes. So I bought three giant 40 pound bags of potatoes. <laughs> yeah, buddy, and those are good potatoes. <laughs> yeah, you know the potatoes I'm talking about. So, like, for two days, I drove around these two big, big giant bags of potatoes in the back of my Jeep to all my neighbors and all my friends. I felt like Santa Claus because I just drove around giving out potatoes to everybody. <laughs> So, and every once in a while, you know, I have a friend come by and they're like, you know, I'll get home and there'll be like a bag of squash or a bag of asparagus on the doorknob. You just all pull you together. Know? It's an it's a neighborly thing. Everybody looks out for each other. Yeah, and I'm not saying that we meet, you know, a large portion of our food needs on this local community, but I'm saying, you know, that there is food sharing going on and that it's becoming more and more and more. But I do everything I can to encourage people to grow your own food, grow your own nutrient-dense food and, and share it with your friends and neighbors. Well, hey, Brian, this has been a blast because you're always fun to to shoot the breeze with, right, Kayleen? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, any other questions, Kayleen? I don't have any more. Okay. Hey, um, Brian, is there anything that we forgot to ask you about that you really wanted people to understand, whether it's about rotational grazing or um, where you're living uh, just outside of Sun City, Kansas, um, in deep in the heart of the Red Hills? The big thing, ladies, is, you know, we got to pay attention to our soil. we got to pay attention to our soil biology and our soil processes. It's not just about what we put above the ground. We have to pay attention to what we're putting on the ground and what's going on below the ground because if we don't start paying more attention to our soil biology and all the wonderful different varieties of life beneath our feet, we're going to lose that. And once we lose our soil, we don't have a future left on this planet. Brian, I couldn't have put it better myself. So, hey, thanks for joining us on on HPJ Talk. And where can people go if they want to follow the Red Hills Rancher? Check out more Red Hills Rancher um, on Facebook. That'd be facebook.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. I'm also on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I've been kind of slacking on the the Instagram game lately, but uh, but that'll definitely pick up once uh, once we move into fire season and once we get cattle back on the ranch. Got a a lot of plans this year, a lot of the interesting interesting and off-the-wall things we're, we're thinking about doing. Um, 
don't want to give too much away. <laughs> Especially don't want to commit, overcommit to a bunch of stuff that I'm only about 10% sure I might do. But uh, we do have a lot of interesting plans and got a lot going on this year. So keep in touch. Awesome. Well, hey, Brian, next time you're you're taking down some cedar trees, remember me and send me a video because <laughs> nothing makes my little rancher's daughter heart burst with pride more than seeing dead cedars go into mulch. <laughs> it's the happiest sight on the planet. <laughs> Thanks for, uh, thanks for the call, ladies. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Ag Resources on February 25th. Corn was down at $3.63. Wheat was down at $4.12. Milo was down at $3.08. And soybeans were up at $7.79. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for the next issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes March 9th with a story from our copy editor, Jennifer Thewer. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, HPJ Talk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on